This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Welcome to week two of our series in Romans. Uh, last week we stopped at verse 17 because I just simply realized I had run out of time and I'm going to try and be sensitive about that again because I know that uh, even though we just started the message that for children's ministry it's still been going on, right? And so I want to honor them. I'm so appreciative of what they do for our children. How many of you just like you know deep within your knower that there is something, uh, you know, that children's ministry is so significant uh, to the kingdom of God and too often, we just make light of it, like, oh, it's just that. You know, it's just kids' ministry. Do you realize that, like, between 80 and 90% of all people who ever accept Christ do so between the ages of 4 and 14? And so I just think, it, like, if, if 80 to 90% of the people are coming, why aren't we, like, putting 80 to 90% of our focus right there? Instead, we just go around chasing adults and pretend needs. And I might go to preaching on that, so I'm going to change my mind here and... So, uh, we are going, I'm going to take a look at all of Romans 1 here today in terms of just reading through it. Then we're going to pick back up in verse 17 uh, so that we get, I want us to have the context, you know, but uh, uh, let's go ahead and jump right in because the clock is burning. So, please open your Bible. Uh, if you're open, using your app, please set that to silent for the sake of those around you. And I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Please follow along in the translation that you like best. That's my favorite one today because that's the one you're reading. Let's take a look. Romans 1, beginning in verse 1, and we read these words. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. For I am under obligation both to Greek and to barbarian, both to wise and to the foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel to you, who are, you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God nor give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies and among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Their gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. Well, not the most positive note, you know, to end on as we're reading through the chapter, right? You know, and, and I, as I said last week, it's kind of an awkward thing is, and when we come to chapters in the Bible and all that, that the, those are there in part sometimes because there's a segue in information. Other times it doesn't make any sense and it happens to be that that's the way the manuscript ended as they got to that end of that skin or that papyri and they went on to the next one. And so when they came along and inserted those chapters and verse numbers to help us keep track of things so that we could explain to one another where we were looking and talking about, uh, that sometimes it just didn't make any sense. It just, to us, looking at it from this point. In seminary, we used to jokingly call it the drunk monk theory, you know, like, why, why did this guy break this off right here? Mid-sentence sometimes, you know, and the answer is that oftentimes we just really don't know, but it sometimes had to do with papyri or whatever else, and now it's just been handed down to us through the generations, and if we go about trying to switch it now, it would just confuse everybody, and then it would be, well, which version of that are you? So it's already we have enough to fight about in what version, you know, whether you're, you know, King James or New, you know, NIV or whatever else. We don't need anything else to argue about. So anyhow, here we are, uh, and just a couple of key points from last week. Uh, I noted in the introduction, you know, that Paul said that he was not ashamed of the gospel, and he says that despite the fact 
that, you know, understanding that here he is as a Jew proclaiming the gospel to kind of the chief city in all of Rome, right? It is Rome itself, and, uh, and, and what he recognizes is that the very nature of the gospel, it's not trendy, it's not earthly wise, right? The gospel didn't grow among the Roman, the, in the Greco-Roman world at that time because it was cool and avant-garde. The gospel was growing, spreading through the world, actually in spite of how it was viewed by the people in the Roman mind. They thought of it as backwards, as unrefined and uncouth. But Paul says the reason that it is transcending, the reason it is filling the earth, and the same reason that I am not ashamed of it is because it is the power of God. It's the power of God for the transformation, right? To save things. And not just talking about salvation in the sense of the moment when someone says, I believe, but we're talking about that greater sense of that salvation of of changing things, of redeeming things, of bringing things together so that when you and I become saved persons and the power of the gospel is at work in our life, that it affects all of creation. So when you and I scamper down, and we'll eventually get there to chapter 8, and it's talking about how all of creation is longing for that day, then when the redemption of humanity becomes so actualized, so real, that all of creation is then liberated from its bondage, when that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and it changes everything. But in the process, the expectation is... That as you and I are walking out this gospel call upon our lives, that it literally brings hope and healing to the entire cosmos. The power of God to save and redeem all of creation from its bondage to sin. Now, as we pick up there in verse 18 today, what we're looking at is the fallout, the consequences if you will, of what happens when that which was created to rule over creation, that's you and I, be turned from worshiping the Creator and begin to worship the creature, including, not excluding, but actually with primary focus, that being our own passions, desires, and wants. When we put those things on the throne and we cease to be whom we were created to be in the image of God. When you and I were created in the image of God, it was to have dominion over the earth, to serve the earth for the better purpose of its care, of its blessing, of its nurture. That that was the place that we were supposed to be as kings over the cosmos, ruling and reigning. That those things that were created were supposed to be there for our blessing, for they are good things for us. There is a misnomer within the modern church today. It comes to us all the way back from the first century, a a thing called Gnosticism, which treats as that all things material are evil. And so people will take verses out of context that talk about, like say in Galatians, where pitting flesh against the spirit, and then we'll conclude that all things fleshly are evil. That, however, is not in witness with the rest of Scripture that talks about, and so yet with my eyes and with my flesh shall I see God. We're reminded that there is a bodily resurrection, that the teaching of a spiritual resurrection, which we just float around on clouds and things like that, is pagan, not Christian. That there is nowhere in the Scriptures that it's taught that you and I are just going to become disembodied spirits. 
In fact, quite the opposite, the witness, the testimony of the weight of Scripture says that whenever there's a disembodied spirit, the thing it wants most is a corporal experience, right? The demons say, don't cast us into nothing, cast us into the pigs. It's better to be in a pig than to be in waterless places, to be out there in the nothingness, the great vastness of nothing, that, that the desire, the creation, that nature, that part of our nature is that we would be Standing before the Lord, body, soul, and spirit. There is a physical resurrection coming. Jesus' resurrection was physical. He said, here, touch. He didn't say, here, pass through this spiritual existence of mine. And so in that, uh, that, that false teaching that's out there sometimes, uh, it gives us the idea that everything created is bad and, and that only spiritual things are good, separating the two from one another. And it, it is a terrible disservice. It also leads to the idea that I can be spiritually good while being earthly bad. Now, here as we pick up, humanity as free moral agents, having turned from their vocation as kings and rulers of creation to that of worshiping the creation rather than the creator, have then made the creation masters over themselves. See, inherently, you have created things within you that are good, right? God said that His creation was good and He gave us these things to be a blessing to us. For instance, you have feelings and emotions. They are neither good nor bad. They are telling you what's happening. They're telling you that something, it, it is making you aware of what's going on around you. You have hunger. Hunger's neither good nor bad. It tells you it's maybe time to eat, or maybe it's telling you that uh, you're too preoccupied. I don't know. But uh, maybe if you're sitting here thinking about, you know, whether or not you're going to beat the Baptist, or, you know, to lunch today, well, that might be a bad thing. But um, listen, uh, within us, the normative thing is that we, are, we have these emotions, we have the, our physical well-being, and we have all of creation. There is pleasure and joy in those things. We enjoy good food, right? Oh, don't leave me hanging on that one. I know I'm not the... I've seen you, okay? I've been there at Applebee's and what... No, okay, anyhow. Um, uh, I won't get into that one, go to Midland like that. But listen, uh, th and there's nothing particularly spiritual about getting rid of your emotions. Like the teachings of sometimes in the East where we just, the idea is to get rid of all of your emotions. There's nothing particularly spiritual about that. Can I tell you that love and mercy, like don't you want people to have love and mercy in your world? Maybe in particularly for you? Hunger, like there's nothing particularly spiritual about being hungry and fasting. What makes Fasting spiritual is where I am putting the dear self in check and stopping to listen to the Spirit of God. It is not particularly spiritual to be hungry. In fact, if you're ever around me when I'm particularly hungry, you'll know that I'm not very spiritual at that moment. There's a reason we made up the word hangry, right? It was me. But I can tell you that there is something in tremendously valuable about telling my flesh to submit 
so that the Spirit of God can speak to me. But I don't have any expectation. There's nothing particularly spiritual about fasting and the idea what you're going to manipulate God by showing him how good and holy you are. Come on now, he already knows you. That's why Jesus went to the cross. And so there's nothing particularly spiritual about those things. They don't make you a better person. What they do is they help you to bring that flesh into submission to the Spirit of God at work within you so that you can follow His leading. It it puts those things in check so that you can follow what He is doing in you to bring you to maturity, to bring you to the place that He intended. But when we serve your emotions... When we make those kings so that we don't have to obey Jesus anymore. When we serve our hunger so that we begin to abuse our bodies. When we abuse our bodies in the pursuit of things, getting a, a, little, a little dopamine hit, a little rush in our bodies, and in our inner... You know, here's the thing. Uh, I, I would encourage you, if you know who John Hill is, he's probably in the room right now going, shut up. But one of the things, I, I love that he talks about how the anatomy of sin... And how your body and that desire for those things, those physical creature comforts begins to like give you a little dopamine hit. And here's the thing is that progressively what got you to here before, you got to have twice as much to get to that same place. And you just keep falling behind and falling behind. And so you're pursuing and pursuing and pursuing, longing for that same high, longing for that same hit of dopamine in your body. And your body is crying out. And you begin then to serve the creature rather than the creator. See, sometimes when we talk about idolatry, we think it's all about carved statues and stuff like that. Sometimes the greatest idolatry is when you look right in the mirror. Hello? Sometimes the greatest idolatry is right there in the mirror. Sometimes it's in the form of family. Sometimes it's in the form of, uh, of the, our vices. Sometimes it's in the form of our emotions. Anything that we serve and we tell God, back up. Because this is what's important. What I think, what I feel, regardless of what your word says. What I'm experiencing, what I am encountering. I make those things king. Emotions, your physiology, all these things are really good. As a servant. But they make terrible masters. Once that thing becomes your master, here's the thing is that you're not in charge even though you may think you are. You're really not in charge. That's what verse 18 picks up and it says, for the wrath of God is revealed against all. Just like he was saying that that, that, that the salvation has come to all. All who believe. He says, but the wrath of God has been revealed against all. All. See, in contrast to the kind of faith that Paul has expounded upon that's available to us, that transformative faith which really changes us when God pours it out on us, is the reality of the condition of humanity, all of us, Jew and Gentile. Now, please note that even as he says all here in the text, I want to point out to you that in the way the the whole thing is constructed and the emphasis of what he's saying here is that while the indictment is on all of us, there was in particular something that he was addressing 
within, among the Jews that were present when this was being read. I want you to remember that the way this was done, I mean, you think I read a lot of Scripture? Remember, that on the day this was read, they would have just opened up the letter of, of Romans and they would have read to those Roman Christians until it was done. Anybody want to hear me do that one? Yeah, a few of you. Okay. All right. So here's the reality. So they're sitting there, and, 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 and these Jewish and Gentile, formerly Gentile Christians are all sitting together. And the Jews, as the standard bearers, as the historical people of God, were in effect the principal focus of what Paul's about to say in his critique. So it was very uncomfortable. And the reason that they're the primary focus is because of all the people in the room who knew better, it was them. Now, I would make application to, if, you've been, if you grew up in church, he's talking to you. You're the Jew in this. If you grew up in church, if mama taught you from cradle all the way to now what is good, right, just, everything else, and you're not doing it, that is the definition of wickedness. Evil is something that all of us do. You have to know better in order to be wicked. And so Paul is challenging them here, and he's coming up against this kind of self-assurance that had risen in Jewish nationalism with a sense of contempt for those, those Gentile sinners. You know, kind of like the way when church people get contemptuous toward people in the world. Because, well, you know how they are. And more odious to the heart of God. Is when those who know better. Act exactly like the people they condemn. And there's nothing more odious to the world. Than a Christian. Telling them how far they fall. When they themselves are full of the same kind of dead man's bones. There is specific and intentional echoes here of the Adamic narratives, referring back to the time of Adam in Genesis 2 and 3. There in verses 19 to 25, it was Adam who above all perverted the truth and exchanged his personal knowledge of God and so believed a lie as to become a fool, thus setting up the pattern of humankind which worshiped the idol or the created thing rather than the creator. Equally significant is the fact that there in verse 21 and overwhelmingly from verse, verses 23 onward that Paul spoke as a Jew and then uses this kind of argument what we call a Jewish polemic against idolatry. You see it as being evidenced like when you get into Jeremiah and he's talking about how the idols and their effect on people and how ridiculous it is that they're, they're worshiping the idol. And so he goes through these lists and you and I read that and we go, yeah, that's really dumb. Why would somebody worship a carved idol, you know, and so forth? Why would somebody worship a, a stump of wood or uh, something made of gold? But in the polemic is actually the accusation against Israel that there's no difference between those who worship the the golden uh, idols and everything else, and those who know God and behave completely contrary to those things. So he begins to use this. He uses it over and over again, Paul, because of being a Jew and having been raised in that, but also because, here's the other thing, 
is that the Stoic philosophers, the Greek philosophers, also would use these vice lists and, and polemics like this to build their argument to show the foolishness of how people were not thinking and just doing whatever they felt like in the moment and how it was intrinsic to be able to walk in a way that was different and above the fray was and it would actually require you to engage your mind and not just feel your way through it. You would actually have to think about what you were doing. And so they positioned it in such a way to force you to do some critical thinking as you went through the argument. Adhorrent to both Gentile and to Jew, these things that debase a society, these things that cause society to be crippled, human unrighteousness. So Paul uses a verse list, verses 29 and 30. And he starts talking about how they're, in essence, they're puffed up pseudo-righteousness by pointing out the things that all, both Jew and Greek, were equally under wrath for. So that nobody would think that they had anything to brag about. You know, when we don't do better, Paul is saying it's not the fault of the gospel that we don't do better. Because there is no power shortage for transformation. There's a lack of pursuits. I'll expand upon that when we get to Romans chapter 12, but the emphasis the emphasis is, is that we know by the Spirit and, and have this power by the Spirit of God to do differently. And we also know in the flesh, we know by all the, what is natural, everything that's evident around us, what is good and what is pleasing. What, that we know the will of God and we know that His, His answer to what's happening in the world. Now, also structurally significant to this passage is a threefold repetition in verses 23, 25, and 26, if you want to just, if you, you know, you're one of those people that like to underline in your Bible, you might circle these words, they exchanged. And then find its match set, the threefold repetition of God gave them up. They exchanged, God gave them up. They exchanged, God gave them up. It's intentional. It's very intentional because you need to understand what he's saying. It's about the, the vicious sense, the, the vicious circle of human sin. It begins with a failure to acknowledge God leading us toward degenerate behavior. Human pride reaping the fruit of its depravity and general nastiness. The principal emphasis is on human inexcusableness and the appropriateness of judgment on that sin. But watch how it develops. Verses 19 to 23 says, sin against the truth of God. Then verse 24 through 27, it takes us another step and it says, sin against nature. And then verses 28 to 32, sin against others. 
In other words, what he's saying here is that first it begins in just this kind of general sense of rebellion against the very things that God has told us, what we know to be true and right, and we do what we want to do anyhow, and we think by, by it, just like in Genesis, that somehow we are getting some God-like autonomy, that we are somehow establishing ourselves independent from God. Isn't that what the enemy said to them in the garden? You will be like God. The saddest thing? They were never more like God the moment before they took that into their own hands. They were never further from Him and less like Him than in the moment that they ate. It begins with this rebellion against what God has said it progresses to a rebellion against the things that, that even all of creation, like all of nature tells us uh, is wrong. It, that Everything that, uh, just in the way we treat people, there's the evidence. You and I, all of creation witnesses to us what a good dad ought to be like, what a good mom ought to be like, what kindness looks like, what is right to do by people, what is just. Even before we get into the Word of God, those things are self-evident. And when we begin to sin against those things, we begin to rebel against those things, and then eventually that we begin to then mistreat one another. It is a progressive debasement. And so then those words, God gave them up, is underscoring the point that in striking free of God's immediate control, that man has not escaped God's control. They have not escaped the ordering of creation, but instead... Instead of finding themselves in godlike independence, have never been more prey to the reality of how creation is made. Not prey to an impersonal and arbitrary fate, but that man cannot escape his own nature and the nature of the world that God has made, so that God, who handed humanity over to their desires, and to the endless pursuit of their satisfaction, find out that Adam's freedom to go his own way is exactly the limits that God set. And so there's nothing new under the sun. Isn't it amazing? We, we think somehow that we become so avant-garde and that we do things that are different and, and, and like we think somehow that we've evolved in the modern age and you know the only thing that has really happened in the modern age is that we've got technology so we can sin faster, right? I mean, when I was a kid, pornography came in a brown paper wrapper. And you had to like go get a money order and stuff like that, you know, because nobody wanted that to come back to their check. Now it just comes right to your phone. Maybe even while you're sitting there talking to your spouse. But nothing's really new. You didn't invent something. They didn't invent anything. It's just technology to do the same old stupid stuff bound by the limits of how we are made. That's why we don't come up with anything new. And so humanity is still the creature that God made. 
But remember how it was that we were created to rule and have reign over the creature? That includes the creature within, right? And so when we go to, maybe you go to SeaWorld or something like that, and you watch a little, and I'm not like advocating SeaWorld, okay, for those of you who don't like SeaWorld. But when a little woman, five foot two, eyes of blue, climbs up a ladder, puts a fish in her mouth, leans over, and Shamu leaps up, and then what? Chomps her head off? No, he does what? He takes the fish gently from her lips and then obeys her command. She goes like this, and he rolls over. And, and Why is that big killer wheel? I guarantee you in nature it doesn't happen that way. Because you are seeing glimpses of what it looks like to be created in the image of God, that we were created to rule over creation. And I don't just mean like building boxes and air conditioning them, which is really cool. We're commanding nature right now. Aren't you comfy? We get in our cars and we drive across ribbons of highway that we laid there, and we go at 70 miles an hour with air conditioning. And you're on your cell phone, which you're not supposed to be, talking or listening or watching impressive, but can I just remind you that it is a glimpse into what God wanted for us to rule over all of the cosmos, beginning with this right here, this creature, telling it to behave, telling it how, what obedience looks like, opening up our hearts, pushing down those passions into their proper place so that we can respond to the gospel of God. And so fallen humanity becomes kind of this ellipse. On one end, man's freely chosen willfulness. On a second, God's ordering of his creation. They can't escape one another. And it becomes clear that God's wrath is indeed the converse of his righteousness. See, Righteousness through faithful dependence on the Creator leads to salvation. Remember what we said last week is that righteousness is not that you are so good or that you do the right things all the time, but in Hebrew, the idea of righteousness is being in a right relationship, a right covenant. You are in the covenant, and it is His faithfulness that makes all the difference, not your faithfulness. You're called to be faithful. Don't misunderstand me. But without His faithfulness, your faithfulness means nothing. So because He is faithful, because He has extended that, then you and I come into this covenant of, of righteousness because He is always doing what is right by us. And that's what leads to salvation. But then also wrath through self-deceit, pride, indulgence can lead to destruction. That's why a lot of times you watch Christians that just seem to be like have zero victory in their lives. It seems like nothing has changed, nothing is happening, and they find themselves in that fearful place of like, how do I walk this out? How do I even enjoy a relationship with God? And it really comes back to this whole thing here because we're so busy trying to act righteous and get all of our ducks in a row and everything else, and it is a pitiful, pitiful spiral. Well, the creature keeps making its demands. And that characterizes so much of man's social relations, our deliberate rejection of what we know to be best, our willful rebellion against the way God has ordered things. It's not, listen, it's not just a spur of the moment or in the heat of an instance. It is the continual flouting of God's authority. 
that somehow it's become popular. Uh, it, it's become this thing of like the, it, it's become edgy to be the rebel Christian. I don't know. That's the most. That's the worst oxymoron I can think of. Like the very inherent nature. Like oh, I'm the bad boy Christian. You are the self-deceived Christian. And so that miserable list of antisocial behavior, the attitude that says, I will do what I will do, damn the outcome, illustrates the flaw of human wisdom, the flaunted independence from God. It ends up justifying so that we wink at each other's sin. I won't tell if you won't. I won't call you out if you don't call me out. And by that kind of self-delusion lays the heart of so much human conduct. And he's calling to, the, to those Romans, they're reading this, and, and he's saying, listen, the foundation for real transformation press in, come, know him, let him be Lord. Doesn't all of creation, doesn't everything tell you that this other way is leading us astray, it's destroying us, and that the power of God lies right here within your grasp to cling to Him, to hold to Him? And so while we as a society have been steeped in a form of Christendom that is, tells us that we can go ahead and do whatever we want to do and it doesn't matter. You know, Christians aren't really any different. We're just saved. Becomes the miserable mantra that makes us feel better, but tells the whole world then there must not be anything worth coming for. Right? Isn't that? Or are they packing this place out? The world just rushing into our churches because uh, that they're so impressed with our message that uh, it doesn't matter what you do or, or how bad you are because Jesus is good. Uh, don't look at me. Just look at Jesus. Uh, I'm a sinner. I can't help myself. Is that really impressing the whole world? Is that really the message of Acts chapter 2 when they were proclaiming the gospel and about the transformative power of the gospel that was so absolutely riveting and changing lives that even as people were dropping dead from lying in the assembly, even while there were people who were having their stuff called out, even as the prophets were telling people the secrets of their heart right there in the assembly, it says that day by day people were added to their number, even while it was saying, and they were afraid to join them. See, seeker sensitive says we're going to open the doors and we're going to be so easy and get along with, and we're going to be just as sinful you are, and we're not going to be any different than you, and you go ahead, pack our pews. How's it working, church? Not a single county in the United States of America in 40 years that has experienced church growth. 40 years! We've been failing miserably for 40 years! How's that kind of gospel working out for you? 
Or you and I look at Acts chapter 2 and we watch where the power of God was at work in their members, transforming them, changing them. And people said, I would rather be in a place that's so dangerous that there are people who drop dead when they lie. I'd rather be in that place where a prophet could call out my sin in public and I might be exposed. I might be called out like Peter was called Satan by, by Jesus. I might be called out, but you know what? I want to go there because I want the transformative power of God to transform my life. I want eternal life right now. Don't you? Or you want to just keep doing what we've been doing? I mean, we can just keep it up. I don't know why. But we can. We can just keep telling the world how miserable we are. How there's really not any difference between us and them. Or worse yet, we can accuse them of being more wicked, more evil than we are when we don't behave any differently. That's won us a lot of fans. Immorality and religiosity are the same thing, church. Listen, when we got into the book of, Luke, uh, into the book of Romans, I said to you that we were going to come at this a different way. See, in Luther's day, the issue of religious works leading to salvation, I don't hear anyone preaching that. We're talking about the fact that, that there seems to be a disconnect, actually. And there's no one but the cults like Watchtower and Scientology that are selling indulgences, telling you if you buy enough of this or do enough of these things that somehow it's going to get you saved. Nobody's, nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying you can buy your way out. I don't, I don't hear anyone saying that. No one is trying to get you to pay off sin debt through practices of repentance. I have not heard that message preached, not once. But what I do know is that the historical issues that Paul was addressing are very much, very real and very active in our time. And so transformation is not just a topic of Romans 12, but it is the topic of the book and we need transformation in the church. Let's pray. Father, the creation tells us that you are a good and noble God. And just like all of creation reveals to us that you're the lover of mankind, that you are beautiful, that you are creative, that you are passionate, it also tells us from all of nature what is normal, what is abnormal. It shows us how that you made everything with purpose and intent, and that nothing in all of creation was created without a purpose, and that everything and everyone is of great value. And so, Lord, our prayer is today that you would strengthen us as we practice our spiritual disciplines to mortify our dear self so that we are no longer controlled by our creaturely passions. Lord, we're asking for the power of the Holy Spirit work in us together with our intent and together with our intentional uh, pursuit of you that we might be transformed to do your good, pleasing, and perfect will even as we enjoy all that you have created, that we will enjoy it without worshiping it or serving it. Hear our prayer, O oh God. 
that we want to be the people that you created us originally to be, a people who enjoy all of your good creation, who function within it, who experience all of your, your, uh, the goodness of your creation and not exploit it, not abuse it, and not worship it. Lord, we're asking, would you transform us? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. Prayer team, you want to go ahead and come on up. If you've got kids and kids ministry, please let me encourage you to go get them before you come up for prayer ministry because those kids workers are working hard. And uh, then let me invite you to come get some prayer over whatever passions, ailments, or other needs you might have this morning. I hope to see you next week. God bless. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.